Valentine's Day is uh, in the past, for those of you who don't know that. I was uh, out to get a card for my wife, and uh, I know it was well before Valentine's Day, because I've learned in the past that if you wait too long, then those last few days, you're, the, the, the place is just packed with desperate, sweaty men looking to get something. And usually the, 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 the good cards are gone by then. And, and it's hard to get a, a, a good card. There are so many that are, you know, inappropriate and, uh, and funny. I like to be funny, but it's, it's not as good on Valentine's Day. There, there are a number of cards that uh, I rejected out of hand, such as, I love you like Kanye loves Kanye. I'm still not sick of you. If you were president, you would be Abraham Lincoln. You're lucky to have me, and vice versa. I rejected all of those. Found uh, a card that uh, expressed, well, he said what I'd like to say. And uh, there are things that I can underline. She likes it when I underline. Got the card, took it to uh, the cashier, and she said, this is the most expensive card I've ever seen. I was like, whoa. Um, well, how much could a card be, right? I wasn't worried. Actually, I felt a little proud. Well, good. Wow. I am, I'm a big spender. <laughs> and, uh, but it didn't matter. I was curious. I'm like, how, how much is it? She rang it up. I was like, no, that's not so bad. Um, but I, I didn't pick it, because I didn't look at the price, right? I picked it because it expressed what I wanted to express. When you adore someone, you want to express it as best you can. And honesty and certainty are far more important than economy or insincerity. This morning, we hear the story of how Jesus is adored, how he's honored. And it's an incredible lesson for all of us who claim to follow Jesus because it challenges us to adore Christ in even greater ways. We've been studying Mark's account of Jesus, the oldest of the four Gospels. And from today through Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, we will focus on the last three chapters of Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, 15, and 16. Mark has frequently used the word immediately, like over 40 times in his Gospel. It's a very fast-paced account of Jesus. But when it comes to this last week of Jesus' life, and especially the last couple of days, the pace slows way, way down. Mark spends one-third of his entire gospel on that last week of Jesus' life. Out of 661 total verses in the gospel, 242 verses are about Jesus' final hours. And that's because it details Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the core of Christianity. Apart from Jesus being the Son of God, who gave his life as a sacrifice for sin and was raised to life, there is no good news. 
And that's why Mark focuses on it. So now this morning we begin chapter 14 and Mark tells about a beautiful thing done in honor of Jesus. In fact, that those are the words Jesus uses to describe what happens himself. Beautiful thing. And that's high praise. And if I did something for Amy or gave her a gift and she said, you've done a beautiful thing for me, I think I would have done well. Much better than if she said, what were you thinking? So that story of a beautiful thing is sandwiched between the first two verses and the last two verses. Uh, and it goes this way. In those first two verses, talk about the chief priest, teachers of the law, looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. And then the last two verses, how Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And in between, we have this beautiful thing described, verses 3 to 9. So we have a murder plot surrounding a story of something beautiful. Adoration and worship are bracketed by betrayal and hatred. So there's this obvious contrast that's going on that Mark wants us to make sure we see. Treachery versus devotion. And this sandwich technique is called inclusio. It simply means that Mark has framed this story. He's framed it with a murder plot at the beginning and at the end. And the point is to highlight the beautiful thing done for Jesus. And Mark is challenging us to do the same thing. This story is calling God's people to a higher level of worship, a greater expression of love and adoration for Christ. Now this beautiful thing, this is what Jesus calls it, has several characteristics, I think. And I want to point out those characteristics to you as I go through this story. Point out these characteristics of a beautiful thing and ask how well are you adoring Christ? So verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. By the way, one of the evidences that the Gospels are factual accounts is their connection to real places and times. Consistently. Real places, real times, real events. Mark doesn't generalize what's going on and say, Jesus went to some town and, and stopped in some guy's house. Mark says, Jesus went to Bethany. That's a real place. It's two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has actually been going into Jerusalem during the day, and then coming back to Bethany at night since chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. He's been going back and forth Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And now he's in Bethany having dinner at Simon the leper's house. Simon, real person. Leper. Not a great nickname, by the way. Now, lepers don't own homes. They don't have guests for dinner. They're not allowed in society. You have to yell unclean and stay away in the ancient world. So Simon is no longer a leper, but he had been. Leprosy wasn't curable, 
but Simon was cured. How? Undoubtedly, this is one of the countless miracles of Jesus. This dinner is probably a thank you party. But the meal is interrupted by a, a woman who is unnamed. Now, while another gospel mentions her name, Mark has a reason for not mentioning it that we'll get to. And this woman comes in carrying an obviously expensive jar of perfume, this, this container. It, it would have been, just to describe it for you, sort of a, a thin-necked bottle made from alabaster. Uh, to, to open it, if you were going to open it at all, you would snap off the neck, this long neck. You'd snap off a portion of it, pour out a few drops, and then cap it again, bottle it, cork it again, so it continued to be used and saved. This perfume was a syrupy liquid made from the nard plant in India. And this was pure. Mark tells us it was pure nard. This wasn't some, you know, toilet water. This was something expensive, the most expensive. This 12-ounce jar was equivalent to a year's salary. And a jar like this was so valuable that they were often treated like family heirlooms. They would be passed down from one generation to the next generation, sort of the family wealth or, or, or the, 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 the savings account. And she crushed the bottle. The Greek word used here, centribo, means to break in pieces, to shatter. Clearly, this could never be used again. Clearly, she doesn't just give a few drops in honor of Jesus. She does a one-time complete gift. She was, in effect, giving her life savings, her entire pension, her stock portfolio to honor Jesus. It was shocking. So this gummy cologne oozed down Jesus' head and face. And so I would point out the first characteristic is that something excessive done for Jesus is a beautiful thing. This is excessive. Everybody there knew this is excessive. This is over the top. This is unbelievable. She gave it all. So let's look at the interesting reaction from those at the table, verse 4 and 5. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So you notice Mark doesn't name who got mad. Matthew, in his account, he, he says it was the disciples. John, in his account, says Judas was the most upset. And he was the most upset because he was the treasure and he liked to take out of the treasury for his own expenses. These rational men saw this as a stupid waste, and they yell at her. Now, in purely financial terms, this was senseless. This was impractical, but there was great significance in this act that went far beyond practicality. Sky Giussani says, our world seems incapable of seeing beyond the practical. We believe value is only found in a thing's usefulness. And when something isn't useful, we throw it away and get a new one. 
Sadly, he said, this extends to the way we see people. Every year there are millions of abortions. Why? Because someone has decided they're not useful. There are 27 million slaves in the world today, more than any other time in history. Why? Because we've decided that people have no inherent value apart from what they can produce. Why are human trafficking and pornography pandemic in our culture? Because we've accepted the idea that people and their bodies exist merely to be used. Why are divorce rates so high? Because when I no longer find my spouse or family useful, or if they're interfering with my goals, it's okay to break a promise and find a more useful partner. So like Jesus' disciples, we live in a culture conditioned to see everything and everyone through this lens of practicality. But Jesus reminds us that God created his world to be more than practical. Some things exist not to be used. And some things exist to be adored. And this is what the disciples failed to see. They, when they yell at this woman for pouring out this perfume... And unfortunately, a great deal of contemporary Christianity, especially in the United States of America, has lost the ability to value the impractical as well. We come to church and we want a practical sermon. We want a worship service that means something to me now, something I can use now. We want results we want God, but not because of who he is, but for what he can do for me. That's the American culture today. And Jesus becomes our duct tape WD-40 combo pack. All we need to fix just about anything. And we praise him as the almighty improver and the means by which our dreams and goals can be realized. And so as a result, worship then becomes this hidden, practical, pragmatic agenda. And we believe that worship or giving will obligate God to act on our behalf. That is the most common thing I hear from people who are going through trouble. Where's God now? I've been faithful. I've been good. I've been giving. Where's he now? It's because we expect this pragmatic relationship. And rather than beautiful, then our worship becomes a transaction. Second, something impractical done for Jesus is a beautiful thing. This is highly impractical. It's a beautiful thing. Anything given to the Lord is never wasted. Nothing sacrificed for him is ever lost. All done for his honor is holy. The word worship means to ascribe worth. It's to see the intrinsic rather than the transactional value of that which is being praised. Jesus praised two gift givers in his lifetime, and they were both women. They gave gifts of love. Now, I heard about this husband who was wanting to buy a gift for his wife, and the impulse or whatever told him flowers were good, but he, a $50 bouquet of flowers that will be dead in a day or two. And he thought, how wasteful, how impractical. And so he bought a $50 savings bond. How very practical. How very financially astute. How underwhelming the response from his wife. Notice what Jesus says, verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. So Jesus sees the rightness of the gift, 
that it's excellent, that it's good. That's the word beautiful. And there were thousands living in poverty just steps away from Simon's house. And they could always do something for the poor, and they needed to. But that was not reason enough to ignore this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Adoring Jesus is an ultimate priority. As much as God cares for the poor, the oppressed, the persecuted, the sick, the needy, his glory is the greatest priority. Worship is most important. Why? Because it puts everything else in perspective in your life. And when the disciples said there was a better use for the money than this, they're actually demeaning Jesus. They're actually devaluing Jesus. By giving this gift, this woman understands, shows that she understands Jesus' incredible intrinsic worth. Probably 30 years ago now, the church I was pastoring uh, decided to take part in this campaign where, where we had these coffee table-sized books that just beautifully explained in pictures and words the, the good news of Jesus. And the campaign was to, as a church, we would, we would buy uh, cartons of these books and then we would go to our neighbors and surrounding uh, community and we would just give them this gift book and ask if they, we could pray for them, minister to them. And, you know, I'm not saying that was the greatest plan in the world, but, but we, it was something, and we did it. As a church, we got behind that and, and uh, um, got cartons of these books and, and went out door to door and just gave these as a gift to trying to bless our neighbors with a, a very accessible explanation of the gospel. I remember that I got two letters. Letters are things that you write and then you fold up and you put a stamp on them and they deliver to your door. This was 30 years ago. Came by Pony Express. And, and so the letters arrived and I, they, I just remember they were both, um, they were both complaints. They were both critical. I, I, and, I, and basically they said, it's such a shame that you would waste money on this obviously expensive book that we're never going to read and we're just going to throw away. It's so sad when you could take that money and you could give it to the poor. You could give it to many other things. And why would you waste that money? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it as a waste at all. I was sad that those people didn't respond. But, but what the point was, I, you know, those books might have cost $10 each and that was Canadian. So it's like virtually nothing. And, and, uh, and we, we gave them away and... Um, because we had a great concern that our neighbors hear the good news. We did that out of a desire to bring God glory and fame and honor, not for some other reason. But you could say that about so many things. What a waste when this could be used to help other people. But, but, but Jesus has a different perspective of value. And he says in verse 8, She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, as we've studied Mark's gospel since the first week of November, three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already explicitly and clearly said, I'm going to be tortured by the officials in Jerusalem, I'm going to be executed, and I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later. He couldn't get any clearer. And all his disciples are going, hey, we don't get this, we don't understand, we're clueless, we, Jesus, tell us what you mean. They don't, but this woman got it. She understood enough. She couldn't stop his death because it was God's plan before the foundation of the world to save sinful people by the sacrifice and resurrection of his only son. 
But she couldn't stop his death. She could honor his death, and she could worship and adore the Savior. And so this lavish gift was connected to the cross, the whole reason Christ came to earth to suffer and die, that by his sacrificial death, he paid the price of sin for all who believe. And for all of us who have, been, who have transferred our trust from ourselves, from our good works, from our self-salvation projects to Christ alone, he has paid it all, all to him I owe. And so everything we give to him is connected to the cross. When I'm giving, I'm giving because I understand what Jesus has done for me. And that's how she honored him. So let me put it in these terms. Third, something appropriate done for Jesus is a beautiful thing. This is appropriate. That's what he says. This offering, no matter how impractical, made spiritual sense. Uh, this woman was seeing something greater. There's always other ways to spend money, to give our time and energy. But when we give honor to the living Lord, it is appropriate. It's fitting for the circumstance. And notice this, verse 8 and 9. She did what she could. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, what Jesus didn't say was, you know, everybody now, you need to go home and you need to get a jar of perfume or you need to get your most expensive family heirloom and bring it to me. He did not say that. He said she did what she could. This is very similar to what Jesus said about the widow and her two coins back in chapter 12. While the rich men are making a big show of their great big contributions, Jesus said this poor woman gave more than all of them because these two coins were all she had and she gave what she could. When we do whatever it is that we're able to do for God, that is beautiful. No gift is too small or insignificant. No gift is so large that it's a waste when it's done in his honor. Jesus deserves this lavish outpouring of love and expense, and she's the only one who gets that. Her deed will be remembered. It's still being remembered 2,000 years later. We're still talking about it. Yet she's not named here, and neither are her objectors. The goal is not her personal glory. It's to show that Jesus is worthy. The point is not for us to think what an awesome gift giver she is, how generous and sacrificial she was. The point is what an awesome Savior we have, how great the sacrifice he made. That's the point. So something proportionate doesn't want to stop. Something proportionate done for Jesus is a beautiful thing. When the Apostle Paul instructed the church on giving to God, he said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. In other words, proportionate to what you have. He says uh, also that each of us should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, but cheerfully. See, the Bible emphasizes proportionate responses to honor the Lord. We can't all give the same. Our gifts are never in comparison to other people. They're in according with how God has blessed us and prompted us. Last week we launched a, a building campaign called Restore and Renew. And over the next two weeks you'll receive more information as we ask you to be praying about and preparing for your response on April 7th to this campaign. We can't make equal gifts, but we can make an equal sacrifice. Whatever is done for Jesus, what God puts in your heart to do is proportionate to what God has done in your life. It's a beautiful thing. And then verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. These are connected events, by the way. Adoring the Lord can make some people pretty angry. Worshiping Jesus can cause some to react negatively. Judas was part of the inner circle, yet he betrayed Jesus. Judas chose to do this, and the religious leaders were thrilled. But God even uses evil, wicked acts to carry out his purposes. 
Now, one scholar helped me see a motif that I want to point out to you. It's the insider-outsider theme in the story. Uh, So, uh, just a little chart to help. Uh, The insider-outsider theme. Uh, Notice the outsider. Jesus is outside Jerusalem in Bethany. He's outside the holy city in Bethany. He's in the house of an outsider, a leper, an unclean person who was to be avoided at all costs in the ancient world. People would be afraid to even be near him, even when he was healed. Simon is the ultimate outsider. And then because Mark does not name the woman with the perfume, she is presented as an outsider. And so we wouldn't expect, expect a display of adoration in that house from that woman. And yet this act of sacrificial generosity and adoring worship far exceeds anything that the inner circle of disciples had done for Jesus at all. And it's an insider who betrays him. One of the twelve. It's the religious leaders of his own nation who want him dead. It's the holy city of God, Jerusalem, that will be the place of his arrest and crucifixion, execution. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Mark shows us a stark contrast between those looking to do Jesus in and those looking for ways to show profound love. So we have things expressed like this. Jesus is a threat, let's kill him. Jesus is disappointing, let's ignore him. Jesus is demanding, let's reject him. Jesus is marketable, let's exploit him. Jesus is miraculous, let's use him. But what we see here is Jesus is priceless. Let's adore him. Simply put, Jesus deserves every extravagance we offer him. What are you doing to express love and praise and honor to Jesus? How are you adoring him? We can be so financially conservative, so emotionally controlled, so jealous of our time and resources and energies, so guarded that we fail to honor and offer very much to the Savior that reflects his worth. What you get might seem excessive. It might not be practical, but when it's appropriate and in proportion with what we have, God is honored. Betty Youngs tells how uh, her mom was setting the table for dinner one night and Marge, the next door neighbor, just came by and saw the china on the table and apologized for interrupting as they were preparing to have company. And Betty's mom said, we're not expecting company. The china is always for my family. When we have company, we serve chinette. And we need to have a china mentality for Jesus. To give him a gift that breaks the budget. To dress our best for the Savior in his honor. To give flowers, not a savings bond. To sacrifice time when we're going to use it in some other way. To break a jar because he's worthy. And when we do that, we join something far bigger than us. We take part in a blessing that will outlive us. When when we hold back and put forward little, then little happens. When we are extravagant. God does amazing things. As Elizabeth Elliot wrote that personal sacrifice paves the way for God's miracles. God is in the business of making far more with our gifts than we can ever imagine. It's the little boy's lunch, all he had to eat, offered to Jesus. It's the widow's two coins, all that she possessed, given to God. It's King David stripping down to his underwear, dancing to honor the Lord. When was the last time you were extravagant for God's glory? 
He's worth more than half-hearted worship. He's worth more than a little tip of our money. He's worth more than a splash of service. And I would tell you that sometimes we need to shatter a jar. Maybe a bigger part of your daily agenda needs to be for him. Maybe you should give something that breaks the budget. Maybe there's a gift so precious, so extravagant, so out of the ordinary that it would be beautiful to God and scary to you. Maybe there's a sacrifice of service and effort that is all you can do, something where God would say, this is beautiful. You gave what you were able. Because love doesn't always do what's sensible, does it? Do something that might raise the eyebrows of the reasonable because he's worthy. The size of the gift only matters in comparison with your resources. And when we break jars, God is honored. God does amazing things when we sacrifice to him. And we may never see exactly what God does with our gift. It may appear to be an impetuous tribute, but he's worthy. Jesus deserves every extravagance we can offer him. As long as our focus is on Jesus and we use it for his glory, even buildings can be an appropriate extravagance he's worthy of. Your gift is going to look different than mine, but what has God put in your heart to do where you say, God, this is the best that I have and it's yours. God, this reflects my love to you and it's yours. So what are you going to do? How's he calling you to respond today? What does extravagance look like in your life? How can you adore the Savior? I want to pause right now and take a moment for each of us to ask what that might look like in our own lives. What is God prompting you to do? How can you adore the one who said he is the way and the truth and the life? Let's pause for a moment. And let me tell you that artistic people should create beauty for the glory of God. Blessed people should bless the Lord with all that is within them. Comforted people should give thanks to the God of all comfort. Happy people should shout for joy for Jesus. Gifted people should use all their talents for the kingdom of heaven. Saved people should celebrate the God of their salvation. Rich people should give back to the Father who is the source of every good and perfect gift. Poor people should be glad that the heart behind the gift is more important to God than the amount of the gift. Worried people should keep declaring their trust in the Prince of Peace. Weak people should cling to the unshakable rock and say, I am weak, but he is strong. Forgiven people should shout, hallelujah, Jesus has set me free. And all the people of God, those whose hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, should know that Jesus deserves every extravagance we can offer him. So if you're one of those people, shatter a jar for our God and adore him.